Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Richard Heinberg. He is a senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute and has dedicated his adult life to understanding the complexity of the environmental crisis and where it collides with energy use and our economy. Richard's got a fascinating overview of the crisis because he doesn't come at it from one angle or one area of expertise. Uh, he's very much got a bird's eye view on the problem. And I would highly recommend anybody go and visit his website and read his essays, which are wide ranging and filled with nuggets of facts, ideas, solutions. They, they're absolutely fascinating. This conversation ranges from discussing um, energy use and peak energy to policies that could ration energy, which was a really exciting part, and ultimately social cohesion. Why we need to collaborate in order to make tough choices, why we will fail without that sense of cooperation, and why increasing economic inequality is making that social cohesion less and less likely every day. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please share it and leave a review. If you love the episode, support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. Interview transcripts are available for subscribers and patrons, and a huge thank you to everyone who's supporting the project. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on Planet Critical. Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I seem to be sort of making my way through all the, the fellows at the Post Carbon Institute. I feel like I found my brethren, but you're all across the pond. <laughs> we emailed a little, well, very briefly about what we were going to discuss. Um, and I've changed my mind, if that's all right. I would sure. love to go through um, your recent essay on social cohesion, and what's happening politically and how that relates to the climate crisis and what we need to change democratically in order to best tackle um, the energy, economic, and ecological crises that we face. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just a yeah, small up. ask. Yeah, I'm up for that. <laughs> all right, fantastic. So maybe, first of all, before we dive into that, if you could give a brief background, um, your history, your, your bio for listeners, mm. and then we'll delve into that. My day job is uh, a senior fellow for Post Carbon Institute. And so... Basically, that involves doing a lot of writing, public speaking, and so on. So I've written 14 books, mostly on energy and climate issues, wow. uh, everything related to the environment. I, I don't have the any specific educational background to help me with that. I, I was trained as an artist and musician. But starting when I was in my 20s, I realized that society was on a basically unsustainable path. And I've spent my entire adult life trying to figure out why that is and what we should do about it. Oh, how interesting. Do you think that not having um, a particular academic background gives you a certain advantage when dealing with the research? There, there are advantages and disadvantages. The, mm -hmm. the advantage, of course, is that I'm, I'm less likely to get caught in sort of a silo of thinking. Um, it's easier for me to sort of transgress uh, 
boundaries of <laughs> disciplines. But on the other hand, you know, it, uh, I suppose credibility is, is reduced somewhat. It always helps if you can say you're, you have a PhD and, you know, climate science or something like that. Mm. Uh, you get asked more often for your comments by, uh, I think probably by mainstream publications, but I try to make up for that with volume. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 14 I, books. Yeah. That's a hell of a yeah, night. Right. And hundreds of essays, you know, mm. it's, uh, so it's all, it's all on my site, richardhybrid.com. I think it's interesting because, um, I mean, everybody I speak to is sort of getting to that stage of like, don't trust us experts. We have not done enough to to stop the the you know headlong rush towards destruction. The atomization of studies is part of the problem. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, you've got people like Naomi Klein. She's such a famous example of somebody that um, she didn't even graduate, as far as I remember correctly, um, because she just kept you know, being a fantastic journalist and so leaving university to go off and do that. So I think you're in a great position to be one of the uh, researchers and sort of truth tellers of our time. And I would hope that m the mainstream would pay more attention. That's <laughs> well, I, I hope so too. Thank you. <laughs> so as far as I can see from having Googled you, um, what you became quite well known for was the peak oil and peak energy stuff um, mm -hmm. a few years ago. And I had, I had a question. Hang on. Let me, let me slow down and think about this. How energy relates to the economy seems to be sort of the critical intersection um, when dealing with the ecological crisis. Um, and yet it seems to be the place where people disagree the most as well. Um, so you get degrowth scholars talking about, you know, just switching over to renewables um, without talking about the fossil fuels that that would take or, you know, the fact that renewables can never produce the amount of energy that we need. You also get some people talking about peak oil and others saying that peak oil hasn't happened or, you know, it's, it's a very, very confusing um, space and it makes it very difficult for the layman, yeah, to establish. I mean, could you, could we discuss briefly before we get into the social cohesion thing? Um, what is going on with our energy demands? Because another thing that, and this is what I wrote down, is that um, you wrote in a recent essay about limits to growth, that energy, uh, the growth of energy use has actually slowed in recent years. It's only 2% compared to, I think, 5.4 decades previously. Right. What, what is going on with our energy demands? How does it correlate with GDP and what can we do? That's a uh -huh. huge talk. Uh -huh. Well, basically, um, most of our energy, about 85% of our energy comes from fossil fuels, um, coal, oil, and natural gas, actually in, in order of the highest to the least, oil is, is our, our biggest source, a uh, single source of energy. So, uh, fossil fuels are of course, uh, finite depleting natural resources. Uh, nature isn't making any more of them, at least in, at any speed that would make a difference to modern industrial society. So <clears throat> with every unit of coal, oil, or natural gas that we take out of the ground and burn, it gets harder 
to access what's left because we, we harvest the stuff using the low-hanging fruit principle. You know, we go after the oil, natural gas, and coal. It's easiest to get the highest quality stuff first and leave the nasty, dirtier, harder to get stuff for later. Well, we've been doing this for so many decades now that it really is getting later, uh, especially when it comes to oil. Um, new oil discoveries last year were at their lowest level since, well, in, in 75 years. So now we're at, at a point where really, if we need new supplies, we have to go to extreme lengths like the Canadian tar sands or uh fracking in the u.s which mm. is you know extremely technology intensive and and not very profitable for the, for the companies that specialize in and, and so on so the the cheap easy stuff is gone we're at the end of a certain era of you know cheap abundant energy that made the 20th century what it was this period of of unprecedented economic growth and technological invention, all this stuff, you know, this is what we grew up in. This is what we take for granted as being, you know, reality, the normal, this is normally how people should live. You know, mm. we should all be driving cars and watching television, but that's not how people live before fossil fuels. And it's not how people will live after fossil fuels. Fossil fuels made all of this stuff possible because they're, they're these magical sources of energy that were created by nature without any effort required on the part of human beings. Mm. Now, the, the question is, where do we go from, from here? And that's not an easy question to answer because um, we would all like to be able to continue living the way we are just by, by somewhat other means, you know, build some solar panels or, or wind turbines and electrify everything. And, and we can go on pretty much uh, the same, but it's not. Even if, and that's a, that's a huge if, these alternative energy sources are capable of supplying that much energy, you know, at that scale, making that transition is an enormous job. When, when we say electrify everything, well, you know, that's, it's two words, <laughs> but it implies, you know, trillions of dollars and decades of of effort in technologies that in some cases don't even exist yet for high heat industrial processes and things like that. So, you know, policymakers are stuck. You know, they, their, their constituents require them to, you know, supply more economic growth, which requires more energy. And at the same time, they know that burning all of these fossil fuels is causing a climate emergency. And that, you know, somewhere in the back of their minds is the recognition that, you know, fossil fuels are finite and we can't keep doing this forever. So there's this idea of the energy transition. We have to transition away from fossil fuels. And that, you know, in, in policy circles, that's kind of a, it's a mantra now. The energy transition has to happen. But nobody has, a, a, you know, a, a real plan for how that will actually work. It's all, it's just a phrase. Well, and as far as um, I understand as well, having spoken to some of your colleagues, um, even if, even if there was an energy transition, uh, it doesn't really mean anything because we will still have to reduce, uh, massively reduce energy consumption in order to use renewable energy. And mm -hmm. the fact that um, 
renewable energies require a huge amount of resources, finite resources and fossil fuels in order to, to build, to be built and then to be rebuilt every 20 years is often never factored in as well. But there's something you said that I want to just nitpick on. You sure, said, um, sure. <laughs> said <laughs> constituents demand from policymakers continued economic growth. Now, yeah. is that true? Is that what constituents demand? I mean, constituents want a job. Constituents want access to certain health services um, or basic universal services. But I mean, as we're seeing, the accumulation of wealth in the world does not trickle down. So surely a lot of constituents would be happy for um, redistribution rather than growth. Right. But that's not how the, the choices are framed for them. Mm. Um, when was the last time you saw a, a politician run on a platform of degrowth say, and, and say, well, you elect me and I'll make sure that you know, the economy contracts in a manageable way. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll make sure you have uh, healthcare and food and, and the necessities, but you know, we're going to have to give up uh, a lot of uh, perks on the outside and change our habits. And maybe we won't be able to fly in airplanes anymore and so on, but you know, life will be okay. I mean, that's, that's what policymakers should be saying because that's the reality of the, you know, the choices we have in front of us and so on, but none of them do. Because economic growth is what they have been relying on for decades to uh, make the, the system work. Uh, just in terms of, of economic inequality, for example, more economic growth tends to lead to more economic inequality. The people at the top of the economic pyramid do better than the people at the bottom. And it's, it's a natural process. And they're like... Uh, it would take a little while to explain why this wealth pump is continually pumping wealth up to the top of the economic pyramid. Unless, and unless we have some kind of redistributive programs or uh, progressive taxation, you know, pretty soon the, the, the super wealthy basically take it all. Mm. Okay. So how do policymakers propose to, to deal with that? through economic growth. Yeah. If, the, if the pie is continually growing in size, then even if you only have a tiny piece of it, well, that little piece will be growing too. Mm. But if the whole economic pie is shrinking, if we don't have economic growth, then that forces some hard choices. The only way you're going to keep the common person from really losing out is if you start taking a lot away from the super rich and redistributing it. And the super rich really don't like that idea. Mm. So the, the policymakers are stuck, you know, constantly having to promise more economic growth, even as they, you know, actually most of them don't even realize that the fact that it's that economic growth is making the problems that they're trying to solve mm. worse. <laughs> mm. I've started to think recently about um, Trojan horse policies. Because I think that a lot of um, the propositions coming from degrowth are really, really cool. Yeah. Um, almost sexy, you know, four-day work week and job guarantee and all this kind of stuff. What's um, not to like? Well, degrowth, that one word, <laughs> that's what's not to like. That's what makes well, people panic in this sort of paradigm. Um, and even thinking about the climate crisis and energy and all these things, they're really 
unless something has a tangible impact on your life, um, it's very, very hard to sort of navigate the abstractions. That is, the climate crisis is coming and we're all going to be screwed in 10 to 20 years, you know? So I've started to think about these Trojan horse policies, like how can you um, create policies that uh, really, really speak to the most precarious of society, i.e. a job guarantee, i.e. universal basic services. I'm stealing all of this from degrowth. But you don't mention growth. You don't mention degrowth. You don't even mention the climate crisis. These are just sort of the <laughs> positive repercussions of um, implementing policies that put people first and therefore planet. Right. Um, because it's, as you said, like the, the, we're sort of stuck in this... Um, uh, paradox, this, this paradoxical paradigm. And so surely the only way to get out is by using the same kind of language, but by slipping in progressive <laughs> action. I don't know. Well, that's, it's, uh, it's a thought that has occurred to many others mm. also. And there's, there's a whole school of environmentalism that says, please do not you know, emphasize the hard choices we have to make. Please do not say degrowth. Just say, you know, um, circular economy. I mean, that's a good thing, right? Uh, uh, or reforestation as a way of dealing with climate change. Everybody wants more forests. So rather than talking about, uh, you know, how we would need to burn less fossil fuels, which might have some implications for, you know, my... Uh, my planned vacation in Belize or something. Mm. Uh, instead, emphasize you know planting more trees. Everybody wins. What's not the like? Mm. Um, and you know there, I think there's a lot to be said for for that kind of uh, policy jujitsu. You know, um, <laughs> I have nothing against it, except for the fact that at some point, you know, the people will will figure out that in fact, if we, if we do these things, uh, then the reality is that the economy will start to shrink and we will face tough choices and the people with the most power and the most wealth will be forced then to start giving some of it up, big chunks of it up actually. And that's, you know, push, push eventually, eventually comes to shove. So degrowth actually depends on that redistribution clause. Yeah, absolutely. It, w it doesn't work without it because if the economy uh, shrinks and we don't redistribute wealth, then the, the people with the least just get shoved right off the table. Uh, they have nothing. And, uh, and of course that destable, I mean, for, aside from the, the obvious moral <laughs> quandary, uh, uh, that also makes it harder for policymakers because they uh, they they start losing constituents and they and people get very angry and this is when revolutions happen, you know when food gets uh, too expensive or people can't afford it when you have an affordability crisis for things like food, energy, and housing, people get really pissed off. Well, aren't we kind of seeing that anyway? And this is a nice segue into social cohesion. Uh, people are pissed off. People have access to less, despite seemingly, um, you know, the huge amount of of growth and wealth that does exist in the world. So what direction do you think that we're headed in? Because uh, I keep wondering, you know, 
I keep thinking about that fact, that little nuggets, which is that um, there is seven consecutive missed meals between peacetime and a revolution. Um, and given what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and, you know, the fact that they're exporters of the cheapest wheat to the most vulnerable nations, um, I think it's very likely that we're, this is going to trigger a wave of revolutions around the world whether they'll be socialist or whether they'll be, um, you know, that grasping at the patriarchal authoritarian figure to, to mm -hmm. come in and clean up the mess. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, what do you think, I mean, for us modern developed Western nations, <laughs> so yeah, it took me a while to get to the right word there. <laughs> what do you think? What changes we, would we need to see culturally and socially between people in order to, to, to tackle the crisis without it involving a, a secondary crisis? It's tough because we've, we've put it off so long <laughs> yeah. that the, the choices are, are really difficult. You know, there, there's no way forward that's peaceful, that's equitable, that doesn't involve a, a climate catastrophe that doesn't also require, you know, massive redistribution, you know, just basically canceling a whole lot of debt for people at the, toward the bottom of the economic pyramid and taking a bunch of wealth away from people at the top and using it to, you know, build the kind of infrastructure we'll need for a lower energy and more sustainable, uh, way of life. That's ultimately that's, that, that's what would have to happen, how we get there, God knows, you know, I mean, the, 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 when you put it that way, you know, there are a lot of people who would say, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what we need to do. But when you, when you ask, you know, <laughs> who's, who in public life is, is calling for that, you know, mm -hmm. what politicians are calling for it, nobody, because they're just too much, it's minefields out there. Mm. I think it's also um, inherently divisive as a mm. as a concept, which isn't okay. necessarily a bad thing. It's just stating the, the the truth of the matter. Because what I found so interesting to see a few years ago was um, a chart detailing global wealth, mm. and to realize that me, my friends, you know, all of us that are earning more than what we would consider very, very meager sums of money, we're in the 1% globally. That's right. So, <laughs> you know, it's not so just... It, does, it becomes personal, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's not just about going for the, the billionaires um, after they come back from their space ejaculation trip. Um, you know, it's also about you know, if you apply those policies to other people, you have to start applying them to, to self because, and I wonder if that's the, the reason behind why socialist revolutions in the past have, have often failed. If you look at France, you know, the, the old one, not the May uh, 68 one, the off with their heads one, um, how power and wealth became concentrated again at the top. It's because people always think that there's somebody above them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, when people are, are living in big groups, nations, whatever, I mean, um, it, it really requires some kind of complex organization to make those things work. So you, mm. 
inevitably end up with some kind of social hierarchy. And I don't think social hierarchy in and of itself is a terribly evil thing, but it tends to get out of hand. You know, the people at the top tend to make rules in such a way as to benefit themselves over the long run. And so the wealth, the wealth pump is created and the wealth, wealth starts flowing upward again. You know, you can level the whole thing out as happened in the 1780s in France, but then it just, you know, before long you have Napoleon. (laughs) It happens again and again through history. Now there, there are better systems than others, obviously. Uh, I mean, the U S has extreme wealth inequality, someplace like Denmark has much less, uh, and that's, there are historical reasons for that, but there are also policy reasons and, and we could do much better in terms of, of maintaining kind of a level playing field. After all, you know, people in the U S and Western Europe are accustomed to a certain level of consumption that's way beyond the average per capita consumption of, of people in the global South. So what do we do about that? I mean, do, do make direct wealth payments from the wealthy countries to the, uh, I, I think that's extremely unlikely to happen because if, you know, while that would be happening, the, the, the country, the, the, the wealthy countries of the North would be downsizing. So imagine yourself living in, hmm. you know, Great Britain or the, or the United States, and you're feeling the, 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 the pressure of degrowth, you know, things, some, some of the perks are starting to fall away. And then the government says, oh, well, we have to take even more be- and ship it down to, you know, Africa or South America or, or India or someplace so that they can improve their per capita consumption. That wouldn't go over very well. So it makes it, it makes it very, very difficult. We are interrupting regular broadcasting of Planet Critical to give a shout out to another climate-centric, no-bullshit podcast, Crazy Town. Crazy Town is a post-carbon institute project hosted by Richard's colleagues and some of my guests. I'm sure you all remember the incredibly knowledgeable Jason Bradford, a biologist and farmer who joined me a few months ago to talk about the future of food systems and why people must learn to feed their community. In a few weeks' time, I'm also speaking with Asher Miller, the executive director of the Institute, about how to create complex systems. On Crazy Time, these two are joined by Rob Dietz, the Institute's program director. Together, these guys thrash out the most important topics and questions facing humankind with a commendable amount of humour and insight. Listening to them is like hanging around the campfire of the climate crisis. Yes, the night is long, but you couldn't ask for better company. Is there a school of thought that you're particularly excited about when thinking about these big picture problems? Well, there's a policy that I think would be really helpful. And I've I've actually written about that lately. And it's, uh, it's cap and ration. And the word ration is not very popular these days. People don't like the idea because of course it brings to mind the idea of scarcity. But that's the reality. We are entering a period of scarcity and rationing is the most rational way of dealing with, with scarcity. And it has a long historical, um, you know, uh, precedent for doing that successfully. 
rationing hasn't been su successful every time it's been tried. But, you know, uh, in Britain after World War II, people were better nourished under food rationing than they had been before the war and, and better than they were after food rationing ended no, in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty typical. It's, it's food rationing is, 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 is used not only as a way of dealing with scarcity, but also as, as an anti-poverty measure in many places like the U.S. has food stamps. Uh, and that's, that's basically a food rationing program. Nobody calls it that, but, you know, that's, that's what it is. And it keeps, you know, several million people uh, from starving to death. <laughs> it's, it's a very successful program. Nobody would want to cancel it. Well, we're going to have to do something like that with energy because energy is the, is the master resource on a day-to-day -day basis. Of course, it's not as important as, as food and water, but energy is what enables us to produce and deliver our food and water. Uh, so if we don't have energy, basically all modern society falls apart very, very quickly. And we are, because of climate change, and having to deal with that, and because fossil fuels are finite and depleting, we are approaching a period of energy scarcity. And we're starting to see that already with, with oil as a result of the Ukraine invasion. The International Energy Agency is saying that Russian, about 3 million barrels a day of Russian oil are probably going to not be available to the market. And there are no likely sources for replacing that much. So the, the International Energy Agency is just you know, published a 10-point uh, set of, of uh, things that policymakers could take up from, you know, uh, banning uh, driving on Sundays to, you know, incentivizing people not to fly in airplanes, and all, all these sorts of things that are kind of emergency efforts. Mm. But over the long run, a much better policy would be energy rationing. And that can take uh, several different forms. A, a British economist named David Fleming came up with a really good set of uh, policy recommend recommendations. He, he called tradable energy quotas. And there's been quite a lot of study of that. He, he came up with the idea back in the 1990s, but uh, it's, it's still being studied and discussed. And it's, it's one of the best that I've seen so far. Could you explicate it a little bit? Sure. Yeah, everybody, um, every household would get uh, a, a a free set of energy rations for each week, right? And there there would be a, a national committee to decide, you know, the total cap on 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 um, energy, fossil fuels, what's what's available, right? And and with climate change in mind, so the amount of fossil fuels available to be rationed would constantly be declining, mm. but you'd get your free ration each week. You'd still have to pay for the fuel, but you could trade your ration. If you, if you, uh, decided, well, I don't really need to drive in a big SUV. I can walk or I can ride a bicycle or I can do this or that. You'd have extra rations and you could, you could sell those. And so you'd actually get a benefit from using less energy now of course there are there are you know poorer people who really don't have those options they're kind of stuck in uh ways of using energy that are not as you know, conservative as they, as they could be and those 
that there are ways that you could use the system to help subsidize those people while you find them other ways of meeting their basic needs that are more, you know, energy, uh, uh, energy conservative. So th there's a plan and, uh, it's, it's been, it's been studied, uh, in, in Britain and Ireland, there's an Irish organization, FASTA, F-E-A-S-T-A, that, uh, is also looking at energy rationing, capping energy and, and rationing it. And, uh, uh, a number of climate scientists are, are thinking along these lines now. Uh, so it's, you know, it, you don't see it being written. I wrote, I wrote an essay about this just a couple of weeks ago. Right. And, uh, and I had basically been invited by a, a I won't name the name, but a big, uh, environmental website, uh, to write this piece for them. And I wrote it and they said, oh, well, it's not a good fit. <laughs> and, and the reason of course, is that they just don't want to talk about rationing. They all, yeah. you know, you look at their website and it's all sort of good news stuff about energy from volcanoes or, you know, but they, you know, the, the tough choices nobody wants to talk about mm. interesting energy rationing the thing that always frightens me about policies like these though whilst um individually fantastic amazing and you even have the benefit of um another little fun fact about world war ii is they did a long longitudinal study of um britain's happiness and found that over a period of 50 years, Britons were happiest during World War II because they had a common enemy and a common goal and they all had purpose and they all had to ration and come together uh, to defeat the enemy. So there's even, I think, I think there would be a very positive sense of um, national capability and resourcefulness if everyone were to agree to, to ration their energy and sort of do it collectively. That's the one thing we need more than anything else. The sense that we're all in this together, mm. it's going to be a difficult time. We'll have to sacrifice, but we'll be doing it together and it will be fair. If we have that, we can do it. Well, I think if we can get there, fantastic. And I think the positive uh, benefits on mental health would be actually amazing. Mm -hmm. However, what I worry about is if we don't sort of fix the financial system and the little loopholes and the, the inequality alongside that, then essentially you'll see very precarious, you know, you'll see an illegal market for energy rations um, and you'll see, what else would you see? You know, yes, you would see wealthy people buying the energy rations of um those who actually need them to power their home, but being forced to do something else, I don't know, right. eat in summer or whatever. Um, undoubtedly, you would see an illegal energy market spring up as well for right. energy itself. So the thing that slightly worries at me when we speak about um, climate change policies and all of the things that um, need to be implemented, it's like, well, we need to, to fix the corruption that's present in the current system too. Um, otherwise, we will just delay the inevitable, which is, you know, the impeding collapse of a dysfunctional oligarchic system. Right. And that's that's why uh, rationing systems, that's one of the reasons rationing systems sometimes fail, 
is because people don't trust. They see too much cheating going on around them and they don't, they don't trust the system. Mm. They think it's being gamed and, and therefore they, they, they refuse to participate in various ways and they, they find ways to cheat themselves. So yeah, you're exactly right. Um, and you know, when we started this conversation, yeah, I think you wanted to talk more about social cohesion. And that's basically what we are talking about. Yeah. You know, if we're going to solve climate change uh, without you know, global catastrophe, yeah. it's going to require social cohesion. We're going to have to work together and be willing to sacrifice together. And we're going to have to have levels of social trust that are much greater than they currently are. Our, right now, our, our social trust is actually evaporating, especially in countries like the U.S., where, you know, the, there's so much political division that it's hard to get anything done, much less take on a huge, huge challenge uh, like climate change. Sorry, I keep talking about problems. No, no, that's what this podcast is all about. I'm just thinking of the, <laughs> how do we keep pushing down that problem? Barring a crisis event, how do we heal um, or improve social cohesion in right. nations like the United States? That is such a, an important question and such a difficult question. Um, well, first you look at what causes the decline in social cohesion. And one of the things is increasing economic inequality. Mm. Uh, as inequality worsens, uh, people stop trusting the system. They, they get cynical and they think, well, the, the people at the top are just serving themselves, which is mostly true. And that, uh, the system is working against me. And, uh, and then they, you know, if somebody comes along and says, well, it's, it's that group that's causing this to happen. And, it, it, you know, if you, if you listen to me, follow me, I'll get rid of those people or, or you know, reduce their social power and increase yours and everything will be fine again. And it's not, a, often, sadly, that's, that's framed in ethnic terms mm. or in terms of other sort of arbitrary designations of social groups that actually have nothing to do with the real problem. You know, it's hard to go after the, the super wealthy and actually get them to pay their fair share. It's much easier to go after a, a, an ethnic group or other social group that's relatively powerless anyway and say, well, it's all their fault. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll just uh, pile on them and, and that will somehow make things better. Uh, but that's, that's the root of the, you know, the populist demagogue and, Unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of those around the world because it's the, the ingredients are there to make, make it easy for them. So somehow we have to defeat that process of social demagoguery. Another thing we need is, is just a set of, of shared facts, information. Uh, and there again, there's some trends are working against us. Artificial intelligence is um, becoming so sophisticated that it's very difficult to tell truth from simulation uh, and, and more so all the time. Uh, I saw just two or three weeks ago, I was in 
Berkeley, California social gathering. And there was an AI researcher there and he had just an ordinary laptop and he was able to demonstrate right on the spot, you know, taking about a minute to, you know, he, he, he said, well, what, what would you like a, a piece of artwork on, you know, and, and you could say, well, uh, how about a piece of artwork that's showing, um, you know, a, a volcano with a, uh, a Greek hero and you know, just arbitrary stuff. And uh, he tapped keys for a minute or two and out came this actually, you know, a, a, a artwork, piece of artwork that would have taken a, a, a highly trained commercial artist, you know, probably three or four days at least mm. to produce. And this, this was 30 seconds. So on one hand, you know, imagine how many people this, this kind of technology could put out of work producing not only artwork, but also text, articles, essays, um, news items, but also faked photographs, faked videos. Deep fake. Deep fake, exactly. And it's cheap and it's fast and it's really hard to detect. So that's, that's, that's one, just one factor that's, that's preventing us from moving in a direction of having, you know, a sense of shared understanding of where we are, where we're going and what we have to do. Maybe we could make AI the, uh, the great enemy that globally <laughs> come together against. Yeah, right. <laughs> you think climate change is intangible? Well, how about this thing that nobody really understands? <laughs> yeah. You know, how do you regulate it? It's, it's, it, it, it's hard because, you know, it uses... Uh, technology that we all love and we all want more of, you know, we all use computers all the time. Mm. Yeah. I think um, I, I have the big hope that uh, in terms of AI and like art and research and these kinds of things that maybe that social demagoguery will kind of work in our favor because we only can, we can only really appreciate a thing. I think there's an element of only being able to appreciate a thing if there's that feeling that it came from somebody who is a fellow human being and therefore in a way just like you and therefore you could achieve that too if mm -hmm. x y and z hadn't happened you know so there's that sort of simultaneous narcissism and, and victimization um that I think creates that sort of mystical quality around worshiping you know our artistic idols um right. And so I think people won't care as much when things come from AI. You know, how, how can you have a relationship? Like, mm, a computer made it. Cool. Once you get over the thing of like, oh, computers can make art now. Wow. You know, and. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I would much rather listen to handmade music than computer-generated music. Yeah. Handmade. That's, that's the term we're going to go back to. Um, Oh, how interesting. We're sort of going off in all lots of directions here. It's great fun. Mm. I'm trying to think of, of, of like a kind of final topic to, to wrap up. Okay, I have a difficult question for you, actually. Right. Um, so you've been with the Post Carbon Institute for a while. There's been a lot of organizations like this that have been trying to preach the climate message for a long time. And, you know, the, the first big book, at least as far as I can think, um, would be Limits to Growth as well by mm. Danella Meadows um, and her co-authors. What have you guys been doing wrong for us to still be in this stage? 
<laughs> oh, boy, I'm sure there's a long list. Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're like Sisyphus, you know, pushing the rock uphill because uh, we, we've chosen a particularly difficult uh, angle in this whole thing. I mean, you could say of the whole environmental movement, you know, why are, you know, after uh, 50 years since the limits to growth, why haven't we, why haven't, hasn't the world awakened and, and dealt with all of these environmental issues? Well, the, of course, the reason is that people don't want to in the final analysis, because it's hard, mm. it would require sacrifice. It would require giving something up. We've just been experiencing, and it's still going on, uh, although we're we're getting toward the trail end of it. We've just been experiencing a period in human history unlike anything ever before. Yeah. Because of cheap, abundant fossil fuels, we've been able to do things that were literally miraculous in comparison with what people took for granted as you know normal human life in in previous millennia. You know, it's pointless to try to enumerate all these things, but just having having cheap food and the sense of security that uh, you know comes with modern urban existence and and so on. It's it's a it's easy to take all this for granted and then to feel that it's, it might be threatened because of climate change or because we might have to change our way of life somehow. It's, uh, it, it's, it's really an uphill battle. So we at Post Carbon Institute have even made that worse by insisting on pointing out the tough choices rather than trying to finesse them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I respect the environmental organizations that try to finesse them by saying, oh, well, all the solutions are there. We don't have to really sacrifice anything. All we have to do is just build a bunch of solar panels really fast. That'll create, you know, millions of jobs and everybody will be happy and, and so on. But, you know, we're the ones we're the ones over in the corner saying, yeah, but but but, you know, where do where do all the minerals come from for all those solar panels? What do you do when they? when they're worn out and you have to throw them away. But, you know, you know, it, it, there really are trade-offs. We really do have to make some hard choices. So I'm just amazed that Post-Carbon Institute is still around, frankly, after we started in 2003. So what, what's that, 15 years? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, uh, you know, there, there's been an audience for this message that's just large enough to keep us going. And, you know, I think, I'm, I'm proud of the work we do, uh, and hopefully that audience will grow. But it is—it's a tough message. I really like um, Post Carbon Institute for the the toughness of the message and for the reality of the the message, um, because of the the wealth of information that is on the Post Carbon Institute website. Now, when I go on any other kind of climate organization and see, um promises <laughs> based yeah, right. on things like renewables i'm like no nope, don't trust you no nope, bye <laughs> um, uh -huh. but i do wonder if generally the environmental movement needs to provide people with not more hope but a genuinely positive realistic vision for the future that sure. yes hard choices will have to be made and yes you know easy jet and ryanair and hopping around to different countries um all the time 
might not be possible, but you could be, have uh, more time with your family. You could have pursue creative things. You could um, come to find a sense of purpose or, or I don't know, sort of escape the precarity of modern life nonetheless. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our, our website, our public website is resilience.org. And I would say half the stories on resilience.org are exactly along the lines of what you've just been saying. You know, how using less, but developing more of a sense of community actually makes you happier, you know, and developing that, that sense of social cohesion, which is what we'll need to get through this. That's, that's really, you know, it's a, it's a reward. Sometimes social cohesion comes about as a result of wartime or natural disaster or whatever. So we may be, we may have some of that in store for us one way or the other. But if we, if we have the attitude of willingness to engage with others and, and put ourselves out there and be willing to start the conversation, then it's even better. Yeah. I have, um, one final question that sort of popped up and you may not have any data on this to, to answer it, but, um, Gen Z have done a fantastic job of, of highlighting the climate crisis. And there's such a mm -hmm. things as, you know, climate change influencers or, um, climate change activists and all this kind of thing. Um, because of the nature of their, um, MO, i.e. disseminating information through TikToks and through short blasts of, in, of um, content, do you ever worry that the younger generation has not quite grasped the severity or the complexity of the situation that we find ourselves in um, and therefore is perhaps doing damage to the movement? Um, because just to caveat this to, to listeners, um, a big thing that climate activists call for is the immediate stop of fossil fuels, which would send the entire world into chaos overnight <laughs> yeah. and would see millions starve and millions more freeze to death, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just not possible, but that's one of the main things they call for. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is a complex situation. It has history. It has uh, complexity in terms of social dynamics and, and economics and all of these things. So you know, people, if they, if they get in, involved in, in climate change, uh, communication really need to do some homework yeah. and, and study all that stuff, but study it from a, from a systems perspective. I mean, it's, you can, you can take a course in economics and just get dumbed down as a result, you know, because economics as a discipline has, is, has a lot of false premises built into it. You know, I've, I've spent basically my whole adult life trying to get to the, the, the truth <laughs> of, of all of these things that we've been talking about and how, how, how the economy and climate change and energy and physics and all of these things relate to each other. And it's, it's been a full-time job and I'm still learning a lot. So I don't expect that everybody's going to get that right away, but it is a, it is a process. And I think environmental organizations owe it to their constituency to try to improve their literacy on all of these subjects rather than just, you know, as you say, you know, finding a, a, a simple message that, you know, may instantly appeal to some part of the reptilian brain, but doesn't really address the complexity of the real situation. 
Mm, that's interesting. And yeah, I wonder how else um, to get people on board uh, without appealing to the reptilian brain, because essentially, you know, in a society of consumerism, that is essentially the feedback loop um, that we're in. Yep. Mm. Education, education, education. I know. For, fortunately, we human beings are, are curious critters. So <laughs> it is possible to, to, to get people to, to want to learn this stuff. I agree. For me. I have a huge amount of um, faith in people, increasingly so as I learn about this kind of stuff. Really increasingly so. Um, and I think it's our, I always like to think that um, our evolution as, you know, sort of self-aware conscious beings came, we lost instincts, but gained the ability to ask questions. Um, and I think that capacity for asking questions is key. And I think getting people out of precarious economic systems uh, and situations so that they have the time to reflect and ask questions and be creative is also yeah. key. Um, people will, people find a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Given the opportunity. And, and most of us still have that luxury now. I mean, mm. once you're actually in a survival situation, there's not that much time to try to reflect on, you know, why is this happening? What are the structural issues? And yeah. And what are the best policies and so on? You're just fighting for your life. Yeah. So while while we have that that space and time, uh, it's it's good to use it. Absolutely, Richard. Who would you like to platform? Somebody I've been recommending lately is uh, my friend Stan Cox, who wrote a book on rationing, and also has written a book on the uh, the Green New Deal and beyond. So he's uh, he he's a fascinating uh, individual. He works at a place called the Land Institute in Kansas, and they've uh, they've been working for decades on creating perennial uh, green crops. Because if we had perennial green crops, then we would be plowing every year. No, oh. yeah, I mean it, it would have absolutely transformative uh, implications for climate change and other lots of other environmental issues so i mean he's he's into lots of of, of great stuff and he's, he's a brilliant guy so he, he'd be terrific oh i would love to speak with him could you put us in touch absolutely fantastic richard thank you so much for your time this was thrilling oh well thank you rachel i i really enjoyed our conversation good i'm glad to hear it yeah if you want to learn more about Richard's work, I've put links to his website over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, leave a review and share it. If you loved it though and you want access to the interview transcripts, support the podcast with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. A huge thank you to the Planet Critical supporters and community. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.